What's normal anyway? We've been asking this question for a number of weeks now, going through the book of Acts, trying to figure out what is normal for Christians. What should be normal for children of God? How should we live? How should we act? And so today we ask the question again um, by looking at the, at the early church and saying what was normal for them, what was normal for them, and so what should be normal for us, that we, we look at the early church in the book of Acts and say, God, help us to understand how we ought to live today because we live in a culture that's going crazy all around us. So we ask the question today, what's normal anyway? And the thing we want to talk about today from the book of Acts is what's normal anyway is transformed lives. Grab your Bible. Open Acts chapter 9, and let's look at one of the most um, amazing transformation stories in all the Bible. Acts chapter 9. Hopefully, as you've been reading, remember, one chapter a day of Acts, so that through this series, you'll read through Acts three times. You've read this already. You've probably, what's the date today? Today the 9th? Look at that. You're on your day, your chapter for the day. Didn't even plan that. That's amazing. So you read Acts 9 today, or you're going to read it later today, right? Right. So Acts chapter 9, you're reading it right now. I'm going to read half of it for you. And so you're, you're halfway there with, with your reading of Acts for the, for the day. Um, starting in verse 1, we're going to read quite a section. We're going to read what I think is one of the most amazing transformation stories in all the Bible. It says, Now Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. And now who's Saul? Who do we know him later as? Paul, the Apostle Paul. And asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, and what's the way? Christianity. They called it at first as a sect, or it was called the way, the way following Christ. So any belonging to the way or Christianity, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. And the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading them by the hand, um, they brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there were disciples at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying." And he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed, and he entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, whom appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may gain, regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit." And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. 
Now, for several days, he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who, is, who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on his name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? And we'll stop right there. So, what an amazing story of transformation. In 21 verses, we see the story of a guy whose life is completely, radically changed from one life to another life. From this Pharisee, this religious leader, who is bent on destroying anyone who followed the way, who followed Jesus. In fact, um, Saul was the religious official that oversaw the stoning to death of Stephen, who was the first ever martyr of the Christian church. So this guy is, is furious, he's irate, he hates Christians. And from that guy, that, that, that guy who's looking to try to completely um, destroy Christianity, he's changed in an instant into a guy we later, who changed his name to the Apostle Paul, who would become one of the most influential figures in all of Christian history. I would say, matter of fact, outside of Jesus, Paul is probably the most influential figure in all of Christian history. Now, I can't think of a greater transformation than that. From the guy who hated Christianity to the guy who us, over 2,000 years later, look back through history and say, this is the guy who we see is the most influential figure in all of Christian history. Now, as we read the story, surely the first thing that we can take from Paul's story, from Saul's story, is that when a person encounters Jesus, like he did on the road to Damascus, or we do in a church service, or we do in our prayer closet, when a person encounters Jesus, something happens. Transformation occurs. Lives change, right? I remember the day I met Jesus. You know, 18 years old, born and raised in a denominational church, going to Sunday school, baptized, confirmed, all that stuff, but honestly did not know anything about Jesus. And one time I went to a church service and they, in, a, in a kind of different church and they preached this reality of Scripture that Jesus was really real and you could know Him and, and, they, and they gave an opportunity to receive Christ and I did and my life was transformed. It was changed. It started changing and it was changed that moment. That's my story and it's many of your stories that when you come to meet Jesus, transformation happens. We see it here in Saul's life. We see it in, 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 in Acts in Peter's life. That before the book of Acts, he's this fisherman who's always bumbling and fighting against Jesus and doing things. But the first guy who stands up and preaches and, and declares what the church is all about is Peter. He goes from a fisherman to a preacher. We see transformation in lives of people throughout time and time again in the book of Acts when they encounter Jesus. You know, jailers become followers of Jesus. Fishermen become preachers. We see this transformation occurring. So certainly... It was normal for them to expect transformation in people's lives when they met Jesus. They expected that if a person really came to know Christ, they would see change in their lives. So when we're asking the question, what's normal anyway? I think it's completely rational for us to then say also, we can expect that when a person comes to meet Jesus, that we can expect transformation. So what's normal anyways is that when Jesus comes into a person's lives, change or transformation occurs. That makes sense so far? We see that from Saul's story. And so we say, so when a person meets Christ, they should change. And I don't think anybody would argue with that. However, 
I chose Saul's story for a reason. Because I want to show you that, that it's, it maybe paints a picture of change a little different than we normally see. But it's the picture that so often we look to and we evaluate our lives against. You see, there is something else that we can assume from Saul's story that I think can be harmful about transformation. And it's this. We can look at Saul's story and conclude that transformation occurs quickly. The man, from one day he's that, next day he's that. Within days, in this story, within days, Saul became a totally different guy. And therefore we conclude that when we come to Christ, we should change overnight. And sometimes we do. Sometimes there's incredible, miraculous transformation in some areas of our lives overnight, and we do change quickly. But it's not in all of our lives, and it's not the same for everybody. Because then, if we look at Saul's answer, but then we we compare our own lives, and, and we look at us, and when in some area of our lives we don't change overnight, we conclude a couple of things that are erroneous. We conclude that either we're not trying hard enough, and I think that's what we normally conclude, Or we conclude that there's something wrong with us. Or we conclude that our spiritual experience with Jesus wasn't genuine at all anyways. And so we say, I tried the Jesus stuff. It didn't work. Well, um, I want you to understand this about transformation. That transformation in Christ is real. But it often takes a lot of time to change. And it often takes a lot of energy to change. You see, when someone comes to Jesus and they recognize their lostness and they recognize their emptiness and they turn from their old sin, sin-filled lives and they accept Jesus' gift of forgiveness and salvation, transformation occurs. They go from spiritual death to spiritual life. They go from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God. They do receive eternal life in an instant. It's immediate and it's real, but you need to understand something. It's not complete. When you come to Christ for tra- in transformation, you do change, but not all of you. Understand, the instant you come to Christ, you are born again. And because you are now in Christ, you have his righteousness, and that's complete. And your salvation is secure. But there is still a lot of the old you that needs to be changed. And that takes some time, and that takes some effort. And that's why when we see in the scriptures that Jesus spent three full years with his disciples, he did it for a reason. He did it because he was walking them through change. He was helping them to grow and to become spiritually developed men that they needed to be that he could then use to establish his church. Because change takes time and change takes effort. And I think a lot of us... If I asked you that question, does change come easy? A lot of us would probably say, we understand this to be true. True. So what we do when we, when we come to Jesus is we, we try really hard to change. We understand that transformation and change is supposed to be the normal for Christians. And so we want to change, and we really do want to be more like Jesus. And so what do we do? We try and we try and we try really hard to change. We do something like this. Let's say before you came to Jesus... And now while you're walking with Jesus, um, you have a problem with anger. Now, none of you would admit that, right? But you have a problem with anger. That anger always gets the best of you. And you can fill in the blank. Anger could be anything else. But you have a problem with, with anger. It always gets the best of you. And so what you conclude is, because I come to Christ, I'm supposed to change. So if, I, if I'm supposed to change, if I just try really hard, I can do something. I can control my anger. Anybody ever said that? I'm going to learn to control my anger or fill in the blank. 
But then something happens in your life. You're driving down the road, a car cuts you off, or your spouse responds in a way that you don't like, or your kids do the, the for a 400th time, do the thing you told them not to do. And what happens in an instant, you're not thinking, you're not prayed up, you're not in church, and all of a sudden what happens? You blow your lid, and you, you blow up in anger, and you know what happens? You feel like a failure. You have this epic fail. You just feel like, like a total failure, and... What do you think when, when that happens? You go, oh, Lord, first of all, you feel guilty. And then you say, Lord, you know what? I just need to try harder. Have you ever been there? I think it's where most of us live all the time. I want to explain something to you. There's a huge flaw in our equation when we think through about life this way. There is this false belief that says that I can fix a problem that I have in my life by trying to control it. I can control my anger or I can control my lust, that I can just work hard at overcoming it. But what I've seen from years and years and years of working with people, it just doesn't work because we have the wrong equation. We don't understand how it works. You see, the solution isn't to control these things. The solution is to be transformed so that these things diminish. And I want to explain that. We say it again. The solution isn't to control these things that are out of control. Because we try that, it doesn't work. The solution is to be changed or transformed so that these things diminish in our lives. Now think of this way. Jesus didn't have to control out of control lust, did he? He didn't have to control out of control anger. He didn't have to control out of control greed, right? Because he didn't have out-of-control lust, he didn't have out-of-control anger, he didn't have out-of-control greed. So as we become more like Jesus on the inside, those things that are improper on the outside will automatically diminish. Where we put our energy and effort is into knowing Jesus more and becoming more like him, and then as a result of that, transformation occurs. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul, who we talked about earlier, Saul, says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 10. Listen to what he says. This is a transformation verse. Colossians 3:10. He says, Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your Creator and become like Him. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your Creator and become like Him. See, as we learn to know Jesus more and become like him, which is a process, um, then we develop a new nature, a nature like Jesus's, where our old faults and failures are replaced by Jesus's nature, and then we don't have to control out-of-control issues because they diminish. It's, it's, called, it's transformation. You see, it's not about controlling your anger or controlling your lust or controlling your whatever. It's about becoming like Jesus so you don't have excessive anger or lust or whatever. And do you see the difference? The one is controlling what's wrong with you. The other is becoming something different where that issue diminishes and is not a problem to control anymore. They're exactly, completely different. But we generally live our lives trying to control something that's, that's out of control, and we fail at it when what we're supposed to do is become different on the inside, and I'm going to show you how to do that, different on the inside, so that as we change on the inside, that issue doesn't rise up anymore. 
Because you can spend your whole life trying to press something down, and a lot of people do. Their whole life, and as self-willed people, we can do a pretty good job. What happens is you don't ever really change. It's always there. You just manage it, and a lot of times, then as you're, you kind of you lose focus for a minute, you stop managing it, and it explodes. And so what he's trying to say is Jesus didn't have to manage his out-of-control anger because he didn't have any. He had to manage out-of-control us. He didn't have any. If you change on the inside, then it doesn't want to come, come, come out anymore because it's not there. Now, with all that being said, how then do we put our energy and our effort into knowing Jesus more and becoming like him more so that we really experience change? Now, to answer that, I'm going to try to draw you a a picture. What's well, a diagram? And I'm not much of an artist, but it's just a diagram with, with some boxes and some, uh, some uh, triangles on it. And this is not original with me. This comes from a guy named James Brian Smith. And I'm going to tell you this. This has really helped me to understand how to create a model for change. But I'm going to warn you in advance. I'm going to try to explain in one couple minutes, ten minutes, three books of information from James Brian Smith about these three points. So I'm just going to hit on, the, on, the, on a, a generic overview, give you the big picture so you can understand it so it can begin to propel you into, into success in this area. So let me draw you a picture. So the first thing on top here is we're going to say this, proper narratives. Then... This is the Holy Spirit. For here is soul training exercise. Exercises, and here's community. Okay, let me explain what this is all about. And I'm, I'm telling you, this understanding this model. This is something that I've come across in the last 12 months of my life. As a guy who has spent his whole life, who's incredibly disciplined, he spent his whole life trying to manage things that I knew didn't belong. And in the last 12 months of my life, by understanding this concept, the things that I used to have to manage, I don't have to manage that much anymore because they don't, they're not there anymore. And so what is this? On top... Proper narratives, I'm going to explain all these in detail. Proper narratives, the Holy Spirit's the triangle that holds it all together, soul training exercises, and community. Smith says this. He says, we cannot change by saying, I want to change. And the evidence of that is every one of your New Year's resolutions. How many of you honestly made a New Year's resolution? It's, what is it? It's It's only two and a half months ago. How many of you made a New Year's resolution and you haven't kept it already? Right? My New Year's resolution, I'm going to prove to my doctor he's wrong. About one year ago, um, I lost 20 pounds. He told me at my annual, my annual physical that when I came back in a year later, I'd gained it all back. And so I'm coming up my annual physical. I've gained seven pounds. <laughs> I'm going to do everything within my power to, to get down to that. Because guess what? I haven't kept it. I've tried and tried and tried, but I, I made the mistake. I went on a cruise. I gained almost five pounds on the cruise. And so I've got to get down to 173 pounds. By the time he gets there, I'm at 179. And so I've got to bring that baby down so that he's not right. Because no peeps. no Oh, that's going to be hard. No peeps at Easter. But we say it all the time. 
We say, I'm going to change, and we don't. We cannot just say, I want to change. He says what we have to do is we have to examine what we think, and I'm going to explain these all, our narratives, what we think, and what we practice, our soul training exercises, or a better word you would think of, maybe a more common word, would be um, your um, spiritual disciplines. And then we have, to, we have to look at who we are interacting with, our social context or our community. And he says, and if we change these things, then change will come naturally to us. We'll naturally become more like Jesus as we address these things, as we do these things, all empowered by the Holy Spirit. What happens then is we change on the inside, and whatever we've been working on tends to work itself out. Because this is what he points out, and this is the thing that's helped me immensely as I've been dealing with this issue, or these issues, is that he says something, I've never heard anybody else ever say it, to find his way. He says, change occurs indirectly. That when you want change, change in our lives occurs indirectly. That if we put our attention and effort onto the right things in our lives, then change will occur in any problem areas of our lives as a result of getting the other areas corrected. Because what we normally do is we have a problem with lust. We just can try to control the lust, but you know it doesn't change. You still have lust. You still go to the hotel room, guys, when you're traveling, and you're tempted to turn the porn channel on. You say, oh, no, well, studies tell, me, tell us 50% of men in, in churches struggle with lust. And you still blow up in anger when you're trying to control it because the anger's still there. You're just holding it down. What he's saying is you don't change anger by addressing anger. You would change anger by addressing these other things indirectly in your life, and as a result of the change that comes into your life because of these things being in the right, right way in your life, then change occurs naturally in the other areas that are out of control or out of balance in your life. So he points out that we have to work on these three, and he points out that the Holy Spirit is the, is the, um, the key to the whole thing. That it's, a holy, it's inviting the Holy Spirit's activity and power into your life to bring transformation into you. The Holy Spirit, without the Holy Spirit, it's just more self-effort. The same as we're trying to push down the thing that's rising up, it's the same thing. It's just, there's this, there, there, it just becomes self-effort. And so we have all this reliant on the Holy Spirit. So let me kind of quickly go through all these three components um, work so that you can focus your attention on these areas of your lives and experience resulting in lasting change. The first one is we have to have a prop we have to have proper narratives in our lives. And he'd say this, you have to adopt the narratives of Jesus. And this has been revolutionary for me. Now understand, I'm going to say this because some of you are going to are not going to hear what I say here because you're going to say I've been in the church world forever. I've been reading my Bible for 30 years. I can I can quote scripture. I know it all. I would say this. Like me, you can, you're going to be challenged in your life and say I don't think I understood it as good as I thought I did. That sometimes we have the wrong narratives. See, here, here's the deal. As people, we live by stories. That's how your brain works. We live by stories. And a, and a narrative is simply a story. We live by stories. If I was to ask you today, tell me about a special event in your life. You know how you would tell me about the special event? You would say, well, it was a day about like this, the temperature was like this, these people were there, so-and-so said this, I felt really happy or I felt really sad, I ate this kind of food. It would be in a story, it would be a narrative 
our minds remember things in stories. And here's how I can prove it's true. When you have a dream or a nightmare, how does it come out? It's a story. When you wake up and you're, you're, you're shocked out of sleep or your wife wakes you up because you're thrashing on the bed and, and she goes, what's wrong? You go, oh, I was having a dream. What's happening? You were involved in a story, weren't you? You were in the middle of a story. You're just about to fall off the cliff that you've been in the boat going down the river or you're, you're just about to, you know, you're getting robbed or, or whatever or you're having a flashback to some horrible event in your past. What's happening is you're living in a story. That's how our minds work. We live in, we, we trans, if you think about later today, this church service, you're going to think about it in sense of a narrative, of a story. Matter of fact, we're reading the book of Acts and what have we said about the book of Acts over and over? It is what kind of literature? It's narrative. It's narrative. In other words, it's stories about what happened to the people in the book of Acts. Now, we are shaped by our stories. The stories we believe about life and the stories we believe about God run our lives. For example, if I believe a story that everyone is a kind of a life story, that everyone is always out to get me and to rip me off, if that's a story I believe, then that will affect how I interact with all people in my life, even my closest family. It'll affect how I trust my wife. If I believe the story that from, from little on, I've been part, part of stories that I'm always getting ripped off, I will conclude that everybody wants to rip me off. The narrative will run my life. Now, here's my point about this with spiritual transformation. Oftentimes, we have wrong narratives about God. We believe things that are not true, including what we believe about God, and that affects how we live and how we think. You know, to bring change, we have to compare what we think about God against what Jesus says and reveals about God. And this is the point I'm trying to make that you've you got to get here today. That Jesus is the litmus test. We must read all Scripture through the lens of Jesus. Remember, the whole Old Testament is pointing forward to Jesus. And then, the whole, and, then the, and then the Gospels tell about Jesus, and Acts tells about the beginning of Jesus' church, and the rest of the, God, the epistles all look back to Jesus and teach about how his church is supposed to go forward. Jesus is the central figure in all of Scripture. But here's what happens, especially if we've been in the church world for a long time. We learn the whole Bible, and we read it, and we know all the stories from, from creation on through, and we don't read it through a lens of Jesus. And so people become experts in the Old Testament, and they're all about Jewish history and Jewish traditions. And that's all right to know that stuff. But they forget that it's only a type and a shadow that was pointing to Jesus, and they live their lives as if Jesus isn't part of the picture. And so they get false ideas about God. They think there's things about God that are not true. Jesus is the litmus test. Everything you read in Scripture is read through the lens of what is it saying about Jesus. What Jesus himself says and reveals about God the Father, that's the truth about who God is. Your story about in your mind, your narratives about who God the Father is, must line up with who Jesus revealed God the Father to be. Because Jesus shows us in the scripture that he came to reveal the Father to us. He says, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That in Jesus, all the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. That's what scripture says. When we understand Jesus, that's when we understand the Father. So you cannot understand the Father without understanding Jesus. And the way we understand Jesus is look how Jesus was revealed in the Gospels. That's the primary way we understand. 
So we understand how Jesus, he, re, he came to reveal the Father. So if you want to understand the Father, you look at Jesus in the Gospels and see how he revealed the Father. And then through that lens, you read all the rest of the Bible. Now what do we find as we do that in a very short summary? What we find is that Jesus reveals the Father as one who is filled with love and compassion, that he's longing to forgive, he's longing to reconcile people to him, that he's eternally good, he's loving, he's trustworthy, and he's out for our good. That's the Father that Jesus reveals. That's the God that Jesus reveals in the Scriptures. But a lot of us have narratives about God that are different than the God that Jesus reveals. And a lot of times people see God as angry or vengeful or distant. They see God in all these different ways, and that affects how you live. For change to begin in your life, you need to correct those narratives, and it starts with your thinking. And I'm going to challenge you. To, I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to give you a homework assignment. I'm going to challenge you to begin doing this by just looking at two narratives that Jesus taught to help us understand the Father. Just write them down because you're going to read them this afternoon, hopefully, because I read half of Acts for you. So read these two narratives in the next couple of days and ask yourself this question. What is Jesus revealing about the Father? The first one, Luke 15, 11 through 32. It's a story about the prodigal son. Luke 15, 11 through 32, or just remember the prodigal son. You can even start before that because the prodigal son is just a, in, in a line of Jesus illustrating about God looking for lost things, a lost coin, a lost sheep, um, a lost son. And so read that parable, that, that, that teaching, and then read Matthew 20, 1 to 15. Now, there's a ton of them I could have started at, but I tried to pick two that kind of taught a couple things about the Father that I think sometimes we misunderstand if we don't read scripture through the lens of Jesus. And that's the story about the laborers in the vineyard. You know the story where, where some people worked all day and some people worked 30 quarters of the day and some people worked half the day and some people worked a quarter of the day, some people worked one hour, and the, and the vineyard owner gave them all the same amount of money. Okay? That's that story. And what you're going to notice about, about these two stories when you read them, both of them say they're teaching. They start off this way. Jesus is saying, and the kingdom of God is like this. He's trying to teach us about the kingdom. In other words, he's trying to teach us how God's economy works and what the king of the kingdom is like. And I want you to do this as you read these stories. Ask yourself, what is Jesus revealing about the Father in these stories? Because like in the prodigal son story, you could look at, at this different you could look at the eldest son, the youngest son, but I think the heart of the story is supposed to be about the father. Because the heart of the story and the other things that are lost is about the person looking for something that was lost. So ask, what is the Lord revealing about the Father? What is the Lord revealing about the Father in the vineyard story where the Father, God the Father, is the one who owns a vineyard? And these people worked all day and these people worked half day and these people worked just a couple hours. And he gave them all the same. What's he trying to reveal about the Father? You're going to see that he reveals the Father as being um, just incredibly loving and ultimately generous. And I want you to read those stories and, and with, the, with the lens of, of not just trying to figure all the details. I want you to say, what is Jesus trying to say to me about the Father? And then this is what I want you to do. I want you to compare that to what you think about the Father and see if they're the same. See if they line up. See if there's some differences. As I've been doing this over the last year or two years, my narratives have been tweaked a little bit. They really have. My narratives about the Father have been tweaked as I've been trying to read all the scriptures through the lens of Jesus. You see, 
Now I've concluded, and it's, it's because of James Bryan Smith, and I'm just going to take something right out of his teaching. I've concluded a narrative about life that I can say I really believe this through Scripture, that I or anyone am one in whom Christ delights and dwells, and that I live in the stable kingdom of God. That that's the narrative of the scriptures. If you want to understand the underpinnings of the narrative of scripture, that we are ones, we know Christ, ones in who Jesus dwells and delights, and that we live in the stable kingdom of God. You know, with that narrative as a foundation, things that used to bother me don't bother me anymore. Things that used to worry me don't worry me anymore. Things that used to anger me don't anger me anymore. Because I know that I am one in Christ, who Christ dwells, and he delights and I live in the stable kingdom of God. So you know what? If something happens where there's going to be a financial, looks like a financial dilemma that normally would keep me awake all night, and I'd be saying, you know, Mark, you've got to get this under control. You've got to stop worrying. When I understand I live in the stable kingdom of God, that's who Jesus reveals. He just taught the kingdom, and the kingdom's in control. You know what happens? I go, it's his. It's not mine. I don't have to worry. When you rewrite the narrative of your life through Scripture, you stop worrying, you stop trying to fix the, the outgrowths of things that are improper because they become, those begin to line up with what's proper. So what I want you to do is I want you to, to, to use these narratives and start reading the New Testament with eyes saying, what is Jesus, especially start in the Gospels and say, how does Jesus reveal the Father? And then how would, I, how would I use this lens to now look at some Old Testament story where people are slaughtered? And I conclude sometimes, oh, God, just if I do anything wrong, God's going to slaughter me. That's what happens. We have a wrong idea of God because we don't read it through the lens of Jesus and try to understand. How does that tie into the whole big picture? Because God the Father is ultimately loving. He's ultimately kind. God is love. So you rewrite, you, you, you reestablish um, or you understand, you, you change or tweak your narratives by looking at the scriptures through the lens of how Jesus reveals the Father. So that's the first thing. And for me, this has been the big one, helping me understand um, scripture through this lens a little bit different. Then let's move on to the next one because we're running out of time. Second thing, soul training exercises, if you can read my writing. Soul training exercises. These are just another word for spiritual disciplines. But what I want to point out about this is that... um, that we do need to put effort, now it takes effort, but we do need to do things that help us to grow and develop. Um, we need to do certain things because they help us, they benefit us. Um, we don't do the things that we do, and here's why I think because of wrong narratives. We generally do these things because we think we're trying to please God or earn his favor. So we say this, oh God, I missed my devotions today. You know, I'm so sorry, God, you're, you're angry with me, or God, I come to prayer, and I know I haven't been here for a while, Father. And we talk that way. Why? Because we have this false narrative that says, when I do soul training exercises, I'm earning something with God. So I've got to do my 15 minutes with God, because somehow God's happier with me. That's because of an improper narrative. When we understand the proper narratives, there's nothing you can do to make Jesus love you more, than then when you do this, you're doing it solely because you want to experience God more and get to feel, experience Him and know Him more in your life. That the whole focus of this changes. That you start to understand the reason you do these things is to benefit you, and that it's not wrong to say, I want to benefit from spending time with God. So the spiritual exercises you do, things that are historically 
repeated for 2,000 years of church history, things like prayer and scripture reading and solitude and silence and worship and serving and fasting, all those things you do, not with a wrong narrative that says I'm trying to earn God's favor or somehow he's going to love me more or give me more or help me more if I do them, but rather I'm doing these things that are established historical soul training exercises in an effort to almost like an athlete says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work hard so that I can run better. That's what it is. I'm, I'm putting effort into the right things because those things are going to help change me. They're going to they're gonna grow my soul. And, you know, so I want, we, we, we do them with this understanding that we say, God, the reason I'm doing these things is I want to know you more. I want to experience you more fully. We don't do them to earn favor. We don't do them on a religious duty, um, but that's what generally people do. And so what happens is they don't have the right result because we think we're doing, we do them like a Pharisee so that we can either be seen or we can try to impress God. You want to know something? God's never going to be impressed by you. He knows us. He loves us anyways. Can you imagine that? He knows all my failures and he loves me anyways. So that that wrong thinking comes from improper narrative. When we have the proper narrative then we do the soul training, just saying, he loves me no matter what. Now, God, I just want to do these because I just want to spend time with you. So this week, what I, what I challenge you to do, when you're going to read those, those chapters, those narratives in the gospel, just sit down sometime this week in a quiet place with your Bible on your lap and read the scripture slowly. Take one of the stories at a time and just mull it over. Listen for what God's trying to say through it. Let it sink in and try to experience God the Father through it. Try to experience God through the text. Don't rush through it. Don't say, I'm doing my 15-minute devotions, which is what we normally do. In a society that sells one-minute Bibles, it proves that that's what we do. You know, our little, you got your little bread loaf on the table. Some of you still got those? Your verse for the day, right? You go, "Uh uh-oh, he's been to my house. There's nothing wrong with a verse for the day. But if that's where we think we got to, oh, we got to do my verse for the day, That's not the point. The point is if you do the verse for the day, that you take it and you say, God, how do I know you through this? How do I experience you? What are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to show me? And so we we straighten out how we think by reading especially the Gospels to understand who Jesus, the Father, the God that Jesus reveals. Then we do soul training exercises that will help us develop the right the right, we're putting energy in the right things so we're learning from God. We're giving God opportunity to change us and transform us and speak into our lives. And the last thing is we live in the right community. I'm not talking about whether you live in Port Washington or Grafton or Sockville. Rather, um, I'll tell you this. If you really want to grow and change, it happens best in community. Often people think of spiritual formation, this is what this is all about, as something private and individual. But the best growth comes when you are intentionally growing with other people. Here's the reason why. Other people can see what you can't see about yourself. And if you're in real relationships with a few other people and you give them permission because you are in relationship with the express purpose of wanting to grow and develop, you give them permission to speak into your life. And you say, and if you speak into my life, I'm willing to listen. I'm not going to get angry with you. Then you will grow and change. Here's why most people don't ever grow. Even if they're in community, people still know, I wouldn't dare tell so-and-so that. 
Everybody else sees it, but no one's going to tell so-and-so. You know why? Because so-and-so's going to blow off the handle, and so-and-so's going to get mad at me, and so-and-so's not going to be my friend anymore. You need to live in community with a few other people that can be honest with you and can tell you, you know what? There's some areas in your life that you need to change in. There's some stuff that you don't see about yourself that, other, that I see. And I love you so much, and I want to help you. I can honestly say this. My greatest growth has come as a result of times when people who loved me helped me to see areas of weakness and encouraged me to mature. That's when the greatest growth you say, oh, that was in the past. No, still happens all the time right now. When people love me enough, people who are close to me, I'm not, what I'm not doing, I'm not inviting all of you to tell me all my problems. I've got a crowd, I've got, I got to, remember, be friends with many, close with a few, have issues with none. You're close with a few. You give them permission to speak into your life so they can say, you know what? I'm concerned about this in your life. And you, and you say, you know what? Thank you. And I want, can you help me to change? This is a, this is an un, under, misunderstood dimension of spiritual growth in our society because we're Americans, we're rugged individualists, and we think it's all about me by myself just trying harder. I'm telling you, growth happens best in community. Matter of fact, Lone Ranger Christians usually don't develop very well. They get what I call saved and stuck. And you, this is how you can tell who they are. They're really the exact same spiritual person they were when they got, just after they got saved. You know, they got saved 35 years ago, and they got whatever movement they got saved in. They're exactly like that, and it's 35 years later. Or they got saved 10 years ago, and God they came to Christ, and they're really the exact same person 10 years later that they were then. Friends, we ought to be changing all the time. We ought to be better and better and better all the time, more and more like Jesus all the time, because change doesn't happen quickly. It's a process. If God changed you all at once, you would die. He's got a lot of things he still wants to change in me. A lot of things. And, uh, and it's going to take him a long time. So you know what? I have people that have permission to speak into my life. And they say, you know what, Mark? That's an issue. I see that happening. And so then I've got to go and say, what's my narrative? What do I believe? What do I believe about? What's Jesus teach about that? What can I do to help grow in that area? What soul training exercises would help grow that area of my life? And give them permission. Because they not only they not only tell you what's wrong, they also tell you what's right. And they also cheer you on along the way. So you know what, friends? Don't be a Lone, lone Ranger Christian. Because Lone Ranger Christians don't usually develop very well. And a lot of times, Lone Ranger Christians are incredibly arrogant and prideful. They think they got it all. Everybody else knows they don't. They're the only ones who's deceived. And so if you don't have a group of people speaking to you, you think you're doing great. Everybody else thinks, eh. But they don't want to say it. Because they're afraid of how you're going to react. Take a few people and give them permission to speak into your life. But people who you know actually care and love for you. That makes sense? So, change. Transformation happens when you combine these three things under the power of the Holy Spirit. Right thinking, right action, and right relationships. When you put those three things in place, change happens indirectly. So if here's your problem over here is, is excess anger... You've been trying to hold that thing down forever. When you put these right things in place, you change on the inside, and this begins to diminish. And then you suddenly go, guess what? I'm not angry anymore. I'll close with this. Suzanne said to me, within the last four, five, six weeks, we were talking about something, and she said, I don't know what's different, 
but you're not as uptight as you've always been. Now, she'd been married for 25 years. She said, you're not getting angry about stuff quite as much anymore. And it's not like I'm a hostile, volatile, throw thing, so that's not me. But I'm pretty high strung, if you didn't know that. And she said, I don't know what it is, but I think it has to do with this. And I said, it has everything to do with this. So here's my point. I can honestly say with all my heart, I came to Christ 1982. How many years ago was that? 30, a lot. 32 years ago? I can honestly say this with all of my heart. I have spent every single day of my life since that day trying to grow in Jesus, trying to serve him every day. You say, that's not, that's not possible. I'm telling you the truth. I was radically transformed. And every day of my life, ever since, there's not been one day that I have not, since that day, had my passion of my life was to serve Jesus. And you know what? 32 years later, the, white, the lady who knows me better than anybody in the world is saying, you know what? You're changing. She's saying this. She didn't want to say it. I like what I see. That's what she was saying. You know why? Because change happens indirectly. Because I've always tried to approach change directly. I got willpower, man. And I'm going to fight it. And I'm going to control that. But what happens is everybody else on the outside can see, oh, look, he looks real good, but you don't know the inside. The people who are closest to you, if the people who are closest to you have the highest opinion of you, that's the way it's supposed to be. If the people who have the highest opinion of you are those who only know you from a distance, that's not good. You understand what I mean? Because they see the real you. So somebody who sees the real I'm just, I'm, just, I'm just saying as a fellow traveler, I'm saying this idea has really helped me of understanding that especially seeing everything through this good and beautiful God, how wonderful he is, and then doing the right things, connecting with the people who can speak into your life, those things that were generally bubbling out, they're not bubbling out as much anymore. And the reason I want to deal with this today is it's easy. I was, this isn't at all a sermon I started off preaching. I told the staff I had an entire outline from Acts chapter 9 on transformation comes from an interaction with Jesus, being full of the Holy Spirit. I had three great points out of it that all came out of the text. And I said, here's the deal. I'm going to preach that message, and you're all going to walk away, and you're going to say, yeah, I'm frustrated as I've always been, because guess what? A week later... Anger still pops up. A week later, you're still battling with lust. A week later, you're still battling with whatever. And I want to say, this is way more complicated to explain, especially in 30 minutes. But I'm telling you, this is, this is helping me. And it's going to help me. I'm just a just person just like you. If it's going to help me, I believe it's going to help you. And so, begin to evaluate what you believe by comparing it to Scripture. Read the New Testament, especially the Gospels, looking for the God that Jesus reveals. Invest in time. Spend time with God in traditional soul training exercises, but do it to get to know him and invite a couple of people or one person that you trust to say, where am I really at? And then don't bite their head off when they tell you something you don't like. Right? That's how growth occurs. You know what? My passion is that all of us grow and develop in Jesus so that we really become people who care. We don't have to force it. It's just who we are. It bubbles out of us. That makes sense? All right. Let's stand together. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you love us so much that you help us to grow in the change.
that, Lord, when we come to know you, there's this instantaneous um, transformation that takes place. We're translated from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. That we are, that we're, in your eyes, we're perfect and we're beautiful because of Jesus. You love us and you can never love us anymore. But then you love us so much that positionally we, we might look perfect, but you know there's a lot of the old us still in us. And you so lovingly and kindly help us to grow and develop. And Lord, I pray that as, as we walk through life, we try, to, we try our best, God, with your help, Holy Spirit, to, to understand the Scriptures. Honestly. We see everything the way you, Jesus, the, the God you're trying to reveal. This wonderful, loving, good, forgiving, gracious God. That you would just grip our souls with that. That we'd understand that you love us. You're not angry with us. And that would just give us freedom. And Father, these rest of these things, you would just help to work out. You'd direct us, empower us to do what only you can do. 